0: Hello and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day.
1: I appreciate, Dick, uh, you're telling people to grab one of my books, but I wish you had said, and also pay for them. <laughs> Authors don't get their books free, and, uh, but I know that anybody here is you're going to be honest. One thing I learned in AA was to be honest and ethical about all things. They invited me up to Dearborn, Michigan one time to speak, and it was in the Hyatt Hotel there, and I was packing up ready to leave, and I noticed the soap dish was in the shape of a, shape of a seashell, and my wife loves seashells and I put that in my suitcase, and then I thought, well, no, this wouldn't be right to take this soap dish. It's bad enough that I'm taking the towels. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I went to my first AA meetings. As I said in the talk last night that it was in, early in October in 1948. The one thing I remember about those meetings in California then, if there was a kind of a breathless feeling, you know, like people couldn't believe that some way had been found to stay sober. You seem to get a lot of gratitude uh, feeling in the meetings. You see, the oldest person uh, sober then would have been Bill Wilson, and he would have had 13 years. So, uh, but California then was uh, a lot of people were coming into AA real fast. Uh, You know, I think that people took geographical cures uh, from the east and then they got to Los Angeles and there was the ocean they couldn't go any further west and they had to get sober. In 1948, California passed Ohio in AA membership and has held the lead ever since. I don't think there's any question about it that the most AA members are in California. And uh, there was a We heard these talks. I heard these talks, and they really impressed me. Uh, I I think I said I'd been in jail two or three times, and I'd hear some guy that had been in jail 30 or 40 times. And God, I felt like a piker. And uh, because I've only been in jail a few times, you know. And this, the big problem, you know, we have with people is people still don't think they're alcoholics. They still think maybe there's a way, the way to drink safely. Uh, And I think I was encouraged about that because I was so young and then hearing all these spectacular stories. On the one hand, the spectacular stories were good about the car smashers and people who had done all kinds of bad things. But then on the other hand, other people who hadn't done all these things were beginning to think, well, maybe they don't belong here. And uh, so we have to keep convincing ourselves and other people that we belong here. Uh, The... But I've heard many people say that they wondered whether they were alcoholics just because maybe they hadn't done anything that somebody else has done. Well, fortunately in AA we have people at all levels. Uh, I found that uh, AA gave me probably the first friends, real friends I'd ever had. uh, I never had many friends when I was drinking. If I had died in 1947, they would have had to enlist some pallbearers because I don't think I would have had six people to carry carry the box around. Uh, I was really kind of overwhelmed uh, in the beginning uh, by the big book and the stories that I heard. That I mentioned last night that there, two of the uh, first three people I met were from Akron, and I really do believe that there was something special going on in Akron. We just saw the stuff here, uh, the pictures and so on, if, uh,
2: I, I believe
1: in something called synchronicity. Yeah, yeah, it, many people f- familiar with that term. Synchronicity. It's a uh, uh, Bill Wilson. If he had ever used it, he would have said it's a ten-dollar word. You know, and he would have apologized kind of for using it. But it just means that things are kind of work out in an amazing way, and it also looks like chance. And yet we don't really believe in chance. L- long before I ever heard the word synchronicity. I heard AA members say that, well, you and I don't believe in chance. And to me, it was amazing that Bill Wilson, he was a failed stockbroker, and he got this opportunity to go out to Akron in 1935 to try to take control of a little machine tool company called National Rubber Machinery. And uh, he was working from a place of weakness. He had no money, he had some backers in New York, but they had no money. And they just thought that they could persuade some of these people to let them vote their shares. They call that a proxy fight. And maybe they could take over this company. And at that time, it would have meant a great deal to Bill because he was flat on his back financially. Lois was supporting him with her job at a department store. And it would have paid a salary of 14000 a year in 1935. And that would have really put them on their feet. But as we know he failed and the one thing that had worked for him to keep him sober was working with other people. As the sl- slide showed here, he had uh, no- nobody had ever gotten sober that he'd worked with in New York but he'd stayed sober. And th- that was the main thing to him, he wanted to stay sober, and so he made these calls and got in touch with Dr. Bob. Well then I learned Later on, much later on, I used to call Henrietta Cyberling on the phone and talk with her, and she called me a few times, too. I never met her in person, but she told me that just a few weeks before Bill called her, uh, Dr. Bob had finally admitted to the Oxford Group people that he was meeting with, he admitted that he had a drinking problem. He said... Uh, well, uh, Henrietta had kind of organized a special meeting where they would all talk about some of their most serious problems, and the purpose of it was to flush Dr. Bob out and get him to admit that he had this problem. Well, he did. He said, well, this may cost me my profession, but uh, I'm a secret drinker. Well, it was a secret only to himself. <laughs> yeah, everybody else knew about it. But the amazing thing to me, though, is that he made this admission and brought it out in the open. And we feel in AA that a person should have some interest or acceptance before you can talk to him about his problem. You can't just hit somebody cold. And so two or three weeks later when Bill called, uh, Henry said, and he said he was a rum hound from New York and a member of the Oxford group, and Henry said, well, this is manna from heaven. This was, well, what we would call synchronicity. First, Dr. Bob makes this admission, Then Bill calls, and then that gives, since he has made this admission, Henrietta can call up Ann and say, hey, i got a guy that can talk to Bill. And boy, to me, that's amazing. Uh, Somebody was running that. And, of course, I believe it's controlled by God, our higher power. And how it's done, I don't know. But I think everybody can look at his own life, his or her own life, and see where there have been seeming coincidences that shaped your whole life. You might have just happened to meet somebody that introduced you to the person you married or uh, met somebody on a plane or a bus and that got a job as a result of it. That's happens to everybody, and I think that's synchronicity. Uh, Bill had a lot of other beliefs. I always heard that Bill believed in reincarnation. Well, I don't, but I did in a previous life. <laughs> the, uh, so anyway, I've, I've talked for about uh, ten minutes now. And uh, it's really great to be up here with these fellows, and I'd be glad to let them talk for a few minutes, and then I'd be happy to come back up here and talk again. So I'll sit down now, and I guess, is it Tom? Tom, yes. Yeah, well, good to see you, Tom. Good, Good to see you. This is Tom from Orlando.
0: Hi, my name is Tom. I'm an alcoholic. And I think I should have sat down when he said 30 years or 35 years, you know. But I'll tell you, it's really a, what do you call it, specificity? It's serendipity. Uh, about a week ago, uh, I was working in the Intergroup office in Orlando, and I saw this little brochure about uh, uh, the archives meeting in Macon. I'm not an archivist. But I like to get out of Orlando as often as I can. (laughs) And uh, I have a motorcycle, and this is about almost 400 miles, so a nice, a nice ride. So here I am. But I'll tell you what's really strange. I read that brochure, and I saw that one of the the speakers would be Bill B. Now, I'm going to tell you a long story. Bill is sober longer than I am, but I came into AA in 1963, and I used to go to a meeting in Woodhaven, Queens, and there was a guy there, an older guy, I think he was a pressman working for the Daily News, and he used to talk about his son. (laughs) The guy's name was Bill, his father. And he used to talk about his son, and he wished his son would get in the program. And I would say, yeah, 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 me too. You know. So as I say, I came in in '63. My sobriety date is January 3rd, 1971. So uh, I listened to these guys. Finally, I met a guy who uh, I, I really liked. He was a terrific guy. He became my sponsor. And as I found out yesterday, he was Bill's sponsor. Now, why I like this guy... He was a little Jewish guy. He was a jeweler. And I first met him, and he told me about this uh, preamble. And he said, you know, there are no dues or fees for AA membership. He said, I thought they said there were no Jews or thieves, and I was going to leave. So, <laughs> so I loved that. I mean, the guy was just terrific. And that's the kind of people. I said, gee, this is terrific. Because I thought, if I come into AA, I'm going to have to stop drinking. My life is over. It's lights out. Forget it. But I met Benny. I met a few other guys that we, we we were reminiscing about, and it was a lot of fun. So I said, "Well, okay." As a matter of fact, when I saw Benny, I knew he was like a town drunk. He was used to drink with my brother, and uh, he told me he was sober. I said, "Where you been, Benny?" "Well, I've been in AA. I'm sober eight years." I said, "Oh my God, eight years!" I, I, I mean it really. You know, eight years. I said, gee, I wonder if I could just stay sober, you know, a couple of months anyway, pay some bills. But what happened, I was in and I was out and I was in and out. And finally, you know, we have to reach a a bottom. Uh, I had a job that was conducive to alcoholic drinking. I was a teacher. (laughs) So I was off at Christmas, I was off at Easter, and I was off in the summer. I see some of you nodding your head, so I guess you are also, quote, educators. But um, uh, what happened was, eventually, I started uh, getting in trouble at home. You know, I used, to, I used to get drunk on a Friday night with my brothers, and, uh, of course, my wife would say, all right. And then it was Saturday night, and then it was Sunday, and then it was Monday, and then she said, I've had enough, Really? So she said I was an alcoholic and introduced me to a priest who said I was an alcoholic. So I went to see another priest in the presentation group, Father Frank Kelly. I don't know if you knew him. Okay. Well, he started talking to me about, you know, uh, the process and, uh, you know, being a responsible citizen and being a good father. And all I wanted was a drink. Also, he was talking to me, I guess for about an hour, I had no idea what he was talking about. But he suggested I go to AA, so I went to a meeting, stayed in the back, hung out in the bar, you know, kept doing that. And uh, one of the guys said, geez, Tom, you've been on the wagon now a couple of weeks, give me a drink. I said, thank you, do us, of the rocks, and boom, that was it. So I did that for a while, but then finally my wife threw me out, and I was living in a, <laughs> a furnished room in... Uh, in Richmond Hill in Queens. And uh, this was 1970. And it cost $15 a week. That's in New York City. It wasn't like a Waldorf. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that was sort of my, my bottom. But at first I thought that was a good idea because now I could drink with peace and nobody bugging me. You know, I had seven children. You know, and it, you know it's tough. I, I couldn't drink at home. So I would... Uh, Get in an argument, end up in the bar. And I just, I'll just tell you one incident. I remember one Sunday, I was watching a giant game. I've been a G- New York giant fan for 100 years.
2: Anyway, I said
0: to my wife, uh, Peg, would you get me a can of beer? She says, I'm not calling in sick for you tomorrow. And I said, it's 12, it's 1 o'clock. What are you talking about? You know what? She was right. I had that one can of beer, and I was off to the races. It's just, I found out afterwards that I had this addiction to alcohol. But anyway, she threw me out, and I, in and out, in and out of the program. But finally, uh, things happened that I said, this is not good. Uh, I wanted to get back with my family. I was sober three months, and I wanted to get back with my family. And she said, well, listen, you're doing good now. You're not drinking, and we're doing fine. So let's just keep it the way it was there was a Christmas, that was Christmas Day in 1970, so I showed her, right? I went out and I got drunk. I was drunk that week, but you know what, what shook me up, and I recall this, I got drunk Christmas night, and the next morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm in this bar on Liberty Avenue in Richmond Hill with all these old guys. You know, I mean, I was 39. I said, something was wrong. 10 o'clock in the morning, and I was half-bombed. I said, this is not so good. So I said, well, I'm going to get back in that program, and I'm going to do it for myself. Uh, although New Year's Eve, uh, I drank with my brother. I had Two brothers were attorneys, and they, we were drinking buddies. And the one guy said, I know, Tom, you're going in and out of AA. Stuff. You really don't need that. What, what you have to do, we're going to have a few drinks tonight. But listen, don't get crazy. We're going to have something to eat. We'll have a few drinks and behave. You got it, Rich. Beautiful. 10 o'clock that night, the police were there. I, I, I don't know what happened. But uh, anyway, that was sort of my bottom. That was my bottom. I came back in uh, in uh, j- the beginning of January. And I tell you, it was some wonderful, wonderful... Things have happened. I never did get back together with my family, but I have a wonderful relationship with my children. And uh, never did get back together with my ex-wife, although she lives next door to me now in Orlando. That's another whole story. I'm not kidding you. I I was sick in 95, and and I called my oldest daughter. I said, Eileen, listen, I I never asked for anything, but I need help, really. I'm not feeling very well. So she says, okay. So the next day she says, well, the only one who has any vacation time is mommy. (laughs) Now, mommy threw me out in 1970. And uh, she came down and uh, she was sort of making tea, you know, so I didn't break my leg in the shower. And the lady next (laughs) door to me said, well, Tom, gee, I'm sorry you're sick, but I want to tell you I'm getting married. I'm selling my house. Now, I live in a community, a mobile home community with 1,100 homes. It's on a golf course. It's really very, very nice. So Peg, my ex, says, I think I'll take a look at that house. I said, it's a good idea. This is a great place to live. It's reasonable. It's very secure. So she goes back to New York. And she was talking about retiring. I said, well, this is really Orlando is very nice. Well, she goes back home, and a month later, my oldest daughter calls me. She says, Dad, Are you sitting down? I said, yeah. (laughs) Why? Mommy bought that house. I said, Mommy bought what house? (laughs) The house next door. And she's been there. She's still angry. You know. I mean, she's been pissed off since 1965. And that's just the way it goes, you know. I don't know whether she bought the house to get back at me or, or what. But there she is. And, of course, she gets a little bit upset if there was an extra car in my driveway overnight. But that's just the way things are. But anyway, I've had a wonderful uh, experience in AA. That's strange, but that's true, you know. I, I could write one of those books, but nobody would believe that stuff. But anyway, I've had a wonderful time in AA. One of the great things is I started riding a motorcycle. You know, when I was down in Orlando, the rednecks said, "Tom, you've got to get a bike. Motorcycle. I said, motorcycle. I was raised in New York City. Nobody had a motorcycle, but I got one. And I have been in every state. I've, I've been, I took the bike to t- Toronto to the International. Uh, and I've been in uh, every state, meetings in every state. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. That's just one of the things that AA has given me, one of the fun things, you know. There have been tragedies, you know, the family members die. Uh, but that's all part of it. I learned that it's just a it's just for today, one day at a time. And as I learned when I first came into AA, things will get better. Because I didn't believe them. Well, I have to tell you, then we'll let bill. I, I, when I first got sober, I wanted to pay some bills, get the family, you know. But that wasn't going to happen. So I, I stayed in AA, I stayed sober, because I say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep this job with the city. And I'm going to retire and get that pension. I'm going to get an apartment over a bar like in Fort Lauderdale or Daytona. And I get that check every month. (laughs) So I'll pay my room rent. I'll pay my bar tab. And what could be better than that? And I really thought that. I really said, this is not a bad, that's a good plan. But of course, with sobriety, you learn there's so many more great things. One of the things I learned, that I'm not a bad guy. It's a wonderful thing to know that you're all right, that you can do every, anything you want to do. With that, I thank you. And now we give you, Bill, from Woodhaven.
2: Hi, I'm Bill and I'm sober tonight with the grace of God, the fellowship of AA and a lot of people who have helped me stay sober. For a while now. Um, my sobriety date is April eighth, nineteen sixty two. Um yeah, you Tom. You drank a lot, didn't you? <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> uh, anyway, um yeah, we 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 found each other uh yesterday and uh and I've been comparing notes since and uh oh by the way I wanna just correct one thing, okay? About my dad. Yeah, I came in first. Yeah before you did Be- before him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was a real he yeah he was a real drunk. He was a, um, and uh, you know real drunks are slow learners. You know, so, uh, and um, yeah, actually I I came in and um, and I got a call from him one day and he had another arg- an argument with my mother. I think he, my mother was your wife's sister, and um, and uh, uh, and um, he said, are you going to one of those meetings again? And I said, I I certainly am. He said, uh, "Could I go with you? I can't handle the quiet in this house." <laughs> and uh, and uh, Charlie Alex Eunice, remember Charlie Alex Eunice? Yes. He was my he became my dad's sponsor. Yeah. Um, he told Charlie that he probably couldn't stay sober because you can't teach old dogs new tricks. And Charlie said, "I'm not the oldest dog you'll ever find," <laughs> and they taught me. So anyway. Um, I I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I know you all do, too, otherwise you wouldn't be here doing the wonderful work that you do, dedicating all the time that you do to it, you know. Um, My sponsor, uh, Benny Michelson, Mm -hmm. who Tom knew very well also, after he he got me through the big book, the next book he gave me was A.A. Comes of Age. And when I read that, I fell in love with the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been in love with it ever since. Uh, by the way, you didn't talk very long tonight. You, you don't expect me to give you any more time, do you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's all right, Mel. Uh, <laughs> I want you to know I not only love this man, I, 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 I honor him, and he's a, he's a special man in my life, and since the first day I met him. And uh, anyway, um, how, did I, how did I get to Alcoholics Anonymous? I drank a lot, That's what I did. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter in the city of New York. And um, uh, after having spent uh, five years in a seminary studying to be a priest, it took them five years to catch up to me, then they threw my ass out, you know. Um, they called me painting the convent one day, uh, and, uh, and my ladder was right next to the nun's bathroom. But, you know, I mean, I was too young to get into their habits. so I mean, I don't know what the hell they were worried about, you know. So uh, anyway, um, so I came out, and I uh, got a job as a newspaper reporter in New York. Um, my story is a very simple one. I'm, I'm a guy that was gifted by my higher power with a lot of writing talent and through the use and abuse of alcohol and my disease of alcoholism, I, I drank it all away. And uh, Every single opportunity that I had, and I had many of them, I drank them away. You know? I was 18 and a half years old when they made me a newspaper reporter for the largest newspaper in the world at that time, the New York Journal American. And uh, what an opportunity, what an opportunity. But you know, I, I advanced. I advanced quite quite quickly because when you're young, you know, you can handle the stuff. And uh, and um, and by the time I was 21, I was a, a rewrite man for the paper. And by the time I was 23, I was a feature writer for the New York Journal-American. And by the time I was 25, I was the obituary editor, <laughs> um, which because I got fired five times. The obituary editor is not you know not not like being a feature editor. <laughs> You're supposed to come in at 3 o'clock in the morning and call up funeral homes in New York and find out what well-known people dropped dead that night. That wasn't a fun job. And besides, I, I didn't have enough time to do that because I was spending most of my time with Moochie in Moochie Saloon, uh, which is right on the waterfront. Great, great, great saloon. Great saloon. Great um, saloon. In fact, every time the tide would come in, the East River would rise and it would flood the basement of Moochies and overflow the toilets and it really smelled really nice. And really, <laughs> I mean, I, I really felt at home in that place, you know. I drank a lot of joints like that, Cuckoo's, Tootie's. Um, tooties. Cuckoo's was a nice joint. It was the, you remember Cuckoo's? No, tooties, did you? Tootie, oh, Tootie's. Yeah, you remember Tootie. Uh, he was a roaring alcoholic. He was almost as bad as you, you know. know. <laughs> Uh, but Cuckoo's, it was the only bar that had a barmaid with a beard. <laughs> and um, I, I, I used to go in there just to check her out, you know, just to see if she shaved lately. You know. uh, I think she had a beard. Or maybe I always went there drunk. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, in the beginning, I had a lot of fun drinking, you know, and let's not deny the fact that, you know, we, a lot of us had a lot of fun drinking, you know. Um, but uh, it catches up, it catches up. And, And it's what's amazing in my life, and and I'm sure in your lives too, the things that we're willing to accept for another drink. You know, I had eight eight automobile accidents, all directly as a result of being drunk. You know, but I never blamed it on being drunk. You know, the steering wheel wasn't working right. The the pole shouldn't have been there. You know, that kind of stuff, you know. Um, It's amazing. I never blamed booze. From the beginning, I thought booze was a friend. You know, it enabled me to do things that I was not able to do before I found alcohol. When I found alcohol, boy, Katie by the door, you know. And the bad thing I did is uh, what we do is we we marry some lovely, beautiful, innocent lady and then drag her down into the pits with us. That's what I did with this wonderful, wonderful wife of mine named Bernadette from a lovely Italian family, fantastic Italian family. She was one of 16 children and only one boy in the whole family, Imagine that I remember his name was Anthony. We called him Tony, and I remember asking Tony one day, I said, What was it what's it like growing up with all of these sisters? You know what he said to me, he said, I didn't know until I was thirteen I didn't have to sit down to pee. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um you know, I I was you know i well I'm an well you see, I'm I'm at heart I'm an investigative reporter, you know. And I like I like to get to the facts. <laughs> uh he was a great, great guy. He's, he's passed on now, but <laughs> he was a great guy. Anyway, I, 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 I drank my way through the, through the newspaper business. Um, I finally quit before I got fired for the fifth time and uh, went to work for a, a, newsway, a news, weekly news magazine, traveled all over the country interviewing famous people, getting drunk wherever I went, missing deadlines, and that lasted three and a half years. And then uh, uh, I was about to get fired from that and I came back to New York and I got a job working for a WOR radio. Remember Doyle Radio? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. With all you drank, you still got a good memory, Tom. You know. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm only kidding. Um, and that lasted six months because on radio, you know, you have deadlines in a newspaper, but you know, they they you know, they're hourly or. And uh, John Scott, who was the head of news at WAB, at, WABC, at, at Radio, kept saying to me, "When we go on the air for the you know 105 news." We got to go on the air at 105 and have the news. Not 106, not 107, 105. All right, John. <laughs> so um, he, he liked the way I wrote the news, but I was always, not always, but often too late. So he he's about to fire me, and I got, then I got a job working for a very small PR firm in New York. Every public relations man I had ever met was a drunk like me, so I figured I'd be safe there. I wasn't. In fact, I was sharing with Willie today. When I went to work for this firm, by this time I was getting physically ill. I, I blew up. Some of us blow down, so I blew up. I became about 320 pounds of, of walking alcoholic bloat. And they gave me, they, they, because of my experience, they, they hired me because I needed somebody to write stuff. And they gave me an office without a window. And so I go out and have my three-hour liquid, liquid lunch, and I come back in my windowless office. and. Um, close the door, and then the boss would knock on my door, open the door, and almost pass out from the smell, you know. So I didn't, I lasted there three months, and then I became almost unemployable. Through the grace of God, um, I, I got very, very sick, very, very sick, and um, I, uh, I wound up going to see a psychiatrist, and um, I used to always, you know, you know, like have three, four, five, six, ten, eleven, twelve drinks. If I had to face something important in my life, you know, like getting married, something like that. And here I'm going to go see a psychiatrist. So, I stopped off at Fred Funk's alone, and I had about oh, five or six really double, double shooters. And so, about, by the time I went to see this guy, the reason I was going to see him because I thought I was crazy. It made so much sense to me, you know. I would think about it, and then one night at, at Third Avenue Bar, um, it just came to me that I was nuts. And so that's why I go, went to the psychiatrist. And um, so I, I stopped off at the bar and, and got ready, and by the time I was ready, uh, you know, I was I was half loaded. He pointed me, at, he sat me in a chair in front of his desk, and uh, I laid my belly on his desk. He told me later on when he saw me, he said, I look like Porky Pig with a hangover. You know, so... <laughs> and... Uh, And this guy questioned me up and down, and um, what he did is he he painted a picture of a guy who was 27 years old who drank every day in the weekend to get his hands on. And then he asked me if I knew what an alcoholic was. And I said, sure. And I described a guy in a Bowery, and to me that was an alcoholic. And then he began to talk to me about the disease of alcoholism, and I got indignant because I suddenly realized he was sort of like hinting, (laughs) suggesting no, he was even doing more than that. <laughs> that I was an alcoholic, and really, I got upset. And um, but I was I was stuck because my wife knew where I was going, and my mother-in-law knew where I was going, and and so uh, he suggested I go to AA. And so I went. Um, I was taken by some guy in the intergroup office to a meeting in AA, and it was my first meeting. They told me that I should listen and identify. Well, the guy that spoke probably weighed 100 pounds soaking wet. I th- weighed 320. How the hell can you identify with a guy like that? You can't. It's impossible. He talked about having automobile accidents. As I said, I had eight. He had about four or five. And I said, anybody can have an automobile accident you. you. don't have to be an alcoholic to do that. He had problems at home, like Tom and I. But you don't have to be an alcoholic to have problems at home. You know, he talked about losing jobs. You don't have to be an alcoholic to lose a job. You know, everything he said, I just, you know said you don't have to, that, that you don't have to be not to do that. So I wasn't not ready. They told me, they gave me a book, told me my home group was the Richmond Hill Group. Mm-hmm. And um, they said I should go there on Tuesdays and Saturdays, and they would get a contact for me. Well, I couldn't tell them. I wasn't going to go to the Richmond Hill Group. I might bump into somebody I knew. You know? I do not want anybody to see me going to AA. I never thought about the fact that Saturday afternoons they'd see me urinating on their hedges, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but they'd see me going to AA, you know. So um, I went, that's how I wound up in the Woodhaven Room, three miles out of the way. And stayed around about three months and, uh, and then went out and drank again. And uh, in the, uh, on August uh, 7th, I, w- I wound up sitting on a window ledge of a hotel in New York City. Uh, the old Margarita Hotel, where known as the 21st Station Police Station, is there now. And there was an air shaft and in in-between buildings, and I crawled out on the ledge because at 28, my life was over. I now had two DAs looking for me on bad charge charges. I had all kinds of phony loans, and um, I was in a lot of trouble at home and elsewhere. And so I thought, I'd but you know what I found out that afternoon—that alcoholics don't want to really kill themselves they don't want to die they just don't know how to live I didn't know how to live and uh, so I crawled in and figured I would go home and leave my wife for good and instead she said to me instead of yelling and screaming and she hadn't seen me in a couple of weeks she said for God's sakes Bill why don't you give AA another try Now I never knew my wife loved me like that and um, and so I did I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous They came and picked me up on April 8th of 1962, brought me back to the Woodhaven group and put me in the kitchen washing mugs and ashtrays and knives and forks and spoons. And and Benny became my sponsor and my life started. And it's been going and going and going ever since through the grace of God. Benny said something to me that very first night, something so important, so simple but so important because the day before I was sitting on a window ledge, because I thought it was all over. And he said to me that night, he said, Bill, if you don't drink, you got a chance. I didn't think I had a chance. And and, and for some reason or other, I believed the guy, you know. And, uh, but he said, you can't stay sober the way you are, kid. He said, you got to change, and uh, I'll show you how. And uh, he became my sponsor and uh, wound up to taking me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and setting me on a course of a life that I never knew I could have. Because at that point in my life, I had no more, really, dreams. My dreams are shot, you know. I didn't think I could accomplish anything. And, um, I tried sitting in front of a blank piece of paper at a typewriter one night, sober, and my hands shook. Because I hadn't written anything, ever, uh, really, of you know, any substance, without having a few drinks. You know, when I would sit at the rewrite battery at the newspaper writing stories, you know, I had a pint in my drawer. And, uh, and, uh, but anyway, um, eventually, you know, we we learn, we learn how to dance again sober, learn how to make love again sober, <laughs> we learn how to do everything. We learn how to live sober, and that's what happened. I learned how to live sober. And then, what I also learned was that the talents that God had given me were not dead, had not gone away. They had been simply buried under the rubble of alcoholism. And, um, and that if I stayed sober, I could become a productive human being again and use those talents. And that's what happened. I was sober, uh, but I got, I got a couple of you know fairly decent jobs. Uh, One in Nashville, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, lived there. I was sharing that with a lovely young lady today. And um, then I moved to Cleveland, got a terrific job in Cleveland. Then I had an opportunity to go back to New York. Three guys in Cleveland, um, um, three very wealthy guys, put up some money um, and financed me in my communications business, you know, in 1968. Six years, six years. I was now starting my own business. Um, three years later, an investment banker introduced me to three other guys, wonderful guys, who wanted to start an independent film company, film production company in New York. And, um, and he said I, he thought I might, might make a good fourth partner. So we met, we talked, we liked each other, and we all fit hand in glove, each of our specialties, you know. And uh, so we started a company called Artis Entertainment Complex. And very quickly, I'll just say that uh, we made a movie. The first movie we made was called Kansas City Bomber. I don't know if everybody, uh, you're too young to remember that. It was about Raquel Welch was a star in the roller derby. Yeah. And I was sharing with Willie today, watching Raquel Welch skate around that roller derby rink in... I can't, I, can't, I can't get it out. Um, <laughs> she's still fantastic. In these black, tight-fitting black pants, you know. I fell in love with the business. <laughs> uh, then a friend of mine, uh, a fellow named Peter Moore, some of you might have read of some of his books. He's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Uh, he and I had covered the Nap Commission together, and... Uh, and um, um, and Peter went over to Switzerland because the guy, the undercover cop uh, who, who brought a lot of stuff out and that, was an investigation of Dirty Cops. And a guy named Frank Serbico was undercover, and they tried to kill him. So he fled to Switzerland. Peter went over and got his rights and was writing a book, and we, were, and we were now making movies. So we got Dino De Laurentiis to put up the money for the film rights, and we made a movie called Serbico, where that put us on the map. And then uh, one of my partners came in one day. Um, with a tear sheet from Life magazine. Never will forget it. It was a story of a young guy in Brooklyn, New York, who robbed a bank to get his lover a sex change operation. And he said, what do you think? I said, well, it's really not my cup of tea, but it sounds like a hell of a story. And uh, so we did it, and we got out to play it again, and we made a movie called Dog Day Afternoon. And then, uh, yeah, it turned out to be a a good movie. And, um, (laughs) yeah. Um... In fact, I had a best friend. i tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen to me. But anyway, it's a, that's the sound. <laughs> well, my wife was mad at me, too, for a while. Yeah, <clears throat> In the meantime, Bernadette, my wife, my lovely wife, who stayed with me, Dr. Bob used to say to Bill all the time, why do these women stay with us? Yeah, how do you answer that? Why did Bernadette stay with me? She loved me, she says. We're married 56 years, so I guess she did, you know. And um, we had four kids when I got sober. We, then we wound up with nine kids. Uh, because, well, a lot of things begin to work again when you're sober up, you know. And, and anyway, we got 23 grandchildren. So we have a wonderful AA and Al-Anon family, you know. And, uh, but Bernard uh, met Lois at a picnic at her house in Stephanie Stone's, and they became very, very close friends. And then one day, Burnett brought me up there and introduced me to Lois. And I was bowled over. I was bowled over. I had met Bill twice, uh, not like Mel. Mel got to know Bill really well. I met Bill at two of his birthday dinners, the you know the intergroup dinners at the at the hotel. Yeah. And uh, but I never, I wasn't, I didn't ever imagine that we would have Burnett and I have a wonderful relationship with Lois for the next 15 years. where she used to spend Christmas and Thanksgiving at our home, and we. Spent a little Christmas up at her place, and uh, she only lived 20 minutes away. So Verna takes me up there, and I meet her, and uh, I go upstairs. I'm sure sure many of you have been to Stepping Stones. Upstairs is this big long room that Lois turned into a museum of AA and Al-Anon. Pictures of the early members, and she captioned everything. She was a very detailed lady. You know, she was a real archivist, that's what she was. And and the desk where she started, I started Al-Anon and on and on and on. And then these albums filled with cards and letters and pictures from people thanking them for saving their lives. These letters came from all over the world, you know, from England and Germany and Scandinavia. And I mean, I was bowled over, so I went back downstairs, and I said, "Uh, Lois, did Bernadette tell you that I'm in the film business? And uh, she said, no, she didn't. Um, And I said, I would love to write a movie about, you know, your lives, you and Bill, you know. And she turns to Vernon and says, "Well, can your husband really write?" <laughs> and uh, so, uh, of course, I'm so humble I don't let those things get in my way. Like my sponsor tells me, I'm so humble I'm proud of it. Anyway, um, I don't worry about it anymore. I used to worry about it, you know. I used to worry about it, being a humble guy. Since I'll never be a humble guy like like Mel. Um, what did you say once to me that well, some people like you have? Something to be humble about. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, I didn't hold that against you, Mel. Um, but she said, let's get to know each other. So we got to know each other, and uh, sooner and sooner, I started bringing a tape recorder up, and I began talking to the Lois, interviewing and, and over a long period of time, she began to share with me uh, all the intimate details of her life and her love with, with Bill Wilson. And uh, it was an incredible story. And in addition to interviewing Lois, I, I went out and I met with people who knew Bill really well. You know, like uh, um, um, the guy that flew him down to to Florida. Yeah, uh, what's his Brink. name? Brink. Smithers. Brinkley Smithers. Brinkley Smithers. I remember Brinkley knew Bill well. I remember saying to Brinkley one day, "I uh, what I was trying to do, by the way, was to get rid of all of the wives' tales we hear in Alcoholics Anonymous." You know, there are so many people who know so many things that aren't true. It's amazing, isn't it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so my job, I I approached this whole project as an investigative reporter to debunk the myths, you know, and just tell the truth. That's what Lois asked me to do, tell the truth of the story. Bill, just tell the truth of the story. So that's what I meant. But I said to Brink one day, I said, um, I understand that Time Magazine wanted to do a cover story on Bill, and they wanted to put his picture on the cover. And uh, it must have been awfully, uh, Bill had to have a lot of humility to turn that down. and, And Brink roared. He laughed. I said, what are you laughing about? He said, well, how many guys do you know that can walk around telling everybody they turned down the cover of Time, you know?
1: <laughs> and suddenly I realized
2: that Bill was just like me. <laughs> or I was just like him, you know? And, um, and so then we, uh, I wrote a movie, and, uh, and we made uh, My Name is Bill W. And, and uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And uh, I never thought that God would bless me twice, but um, I realized that I didn't have enough time in that movie to tell Lois's story at all, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, 98 minutes. He can't tell both the AA and the online stories. and I felt very guilty about that. And plus, I wanted Lois to live to see the movie, and she didn't. She uh, she passed away on October 5th, 1988, and the movie came out October 3rd, April 30th of 1989. Fast forward to 2000, and I, we were building a home now, in in Little River, South Carolina, you know, all places for a Brooklyn boy to move to. Of <laughs> course, I've always been a Southern. I was born in South Brooklyn, you know. So, uh, um, and, um, and we're unpacking boxes. And I find a bunch of old tapes at the bottom of one of these big boxes. And it was all those tapes that I had made with Lois years before. So I put one in my recorder, and out comes Lois's voice. And, man, it blew me away. But then I started feeling guilty, you know. That, I mean, after all she gave me, she shared her entire life with me, and I didn't give her very much back, except Bill's story, which she loved. She, of course, I read her the script, and she loved the script. And suddenly my wife comes running in, and, uh, Hey, ben, well, that's Lois, I say, I know. She said, Well, what, what are you going to do? I said, what, what, what do you mean? She said, You've got to do something with those tapes. I said, I know. She said, Well, what are you going to do? I said, Well, I, I don't know yet, but I'm going to do something. You've got to do something with those tapes. <laughs> You know, wives are, I'm I'm not, you know, some wives are. And um, and it didn't take me long to realize that I had to write her story. I had talked over the years with some producers about, you know, wanting to make the Lois Wilson story. And um, and one guy said to me, who's Lois Wilson? And I said, well, she was married to Bill Wilson, the founder of AA. Oh, Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, yeah, but who, uh, that was his wife? Yeah. I said, well, she founded Al-Anon. Well, what's Al-Anon, you know? So they didn't know. They didn't know. Lois had been anonymous for a long time, and and and, and was not that well known. Still is not a well known enough. And so I re- I decided I'd write a book because if you write a book about somebody, they become important enough to make a movie about. Sometimes, so I wrote the you know the Lois Wilson story when love is not enough, and um, and uh, um, Hazelton, you know, we had three publishers, but I felt Hazelton was the right one to go to. And, um, and then when the book came out, I got a call from my old friend, Brad Moore, who was the president of the Hallmark Hall of Fame. And we built a wonderful relationship when we made My Name is Bill W., and Brad said, Hey, somebody sent me a copy of your new book. Why the hell did not you call me up and tell me about it? I said, Well, we're, we're you know, shopping it around to various producers. He says, The hell you are. He said, We did a wonderful job the first time around. Why can't we do a wonderful job the second time around? So he said, I'll meet you. He said, well, Why don't we all meet at Stepping Stones and talk about it? So uh, Brad and three of his people came in, and um, Peter Deschaux, who had been the executive producer of My Name is Bill w., when we had and we stayed friends all those years, he flew in from LA, and myself and my wife Bernadette. Um, and we all met at Stepping Stones and we talked about it. it. Didn't take us long to decide that Hallmark was willing to make a terrific movie. Um, and, uh, they were willing to go to $10, $12 million, which is unheard of for a TV movie. Most TV movies are maybe three or four million, you know. And, uh, so, but then it took us three and a half years because we had some problems <laughs> along the way. And then when I finally turned it over to God, God worked it out. God worked it out. So I'm going to talk just a little bit more about that tomorrow, so, um, so that's, that's, that's enough for me because I really do want to leave Mel some more time. Otherwise, he'll talk about me. Um, <laughs> but Mel, I, I want to point something out. Mel is not an old-timer, and I'm not an old-timer either. We are simply long-timers. Yeah? I remember I was invited to speak at a big uh, dinner in Chicago at a Polish hall. And they used to get like 2,000 people to this dinner and And over the course of some years, it be, the attendance began to drop, and when they, they figured out the reason why it dropped, it was called the Old timer's Dinner And so young people didn't think that you know they were really welcome. So they changed the name to the long timer's dinner, and the attendance went right back up, you know so um, that's why um, plus the fact that you know, you were what eleven when you got sober? Yeah, because I was nine, you know. Um, yeah. isn't this some program huh isn't this some program and and, and and the people that we meet along the way it's incredible I'm very very grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous I'm very grateful to people like Mel and people like Tom and people like Dick and people like Ross and people like you I really mean that from the bottom of my heart the work you do is so important you know to Alcoholics Anonymous, to help us keep this story alive, you know, and vibrant and exciting, God bless you, over these years. That's what I've been dedicating these last ten years of my life to. This is such an exciting program. I mean, you know, when we sit at meetings and see newcomers come in and they can't, you know, and then watch them, you know, six weeks later, and their lights go on, and we've been we've been witnessing this miracle right in front of our eyes. Yeah. Let me just close it this way. Um, my mother-in-law, Bernard's mother, and I didn't for a long time didn't care for each other. She didn't like me because I was abusing her daughter and her grandkids. I don't know why she held that against me. You know, um, but she was always praying for me. Mama was always praying for me. I wound up living in her basement. My wife and I dragged my wife down to her basement. We were living in her basement with the four kids and uh, I'd, I would stagger in there when I would come home i I'd, I'd, I'd come home to sober up i didn't drink at home. Thank God. But I was drunk enough when I got home and uh, But when I'd walk in outside door to go down to the basement, you had to pass the dining room and Mama was always sitting at the dining room table praying. she had big stacks of prayer cards, the lives of the saints, the New Testament, and two sets of rosary beads. Now that's a prayer. That's a prayer, you know. And I knew she was praying for me and I got very upset. And I would stand there drunk as a skunk and scream at it, Stay out of my GD life. I don't need you. Pray. And she would never even turn around and look at me. She'd just keep on praying. Yeah. Uh, when he, then I sobered up and and uh, and things approved, improved slightly, and um, I didn't know how much they had improved until we moved to Nashville, Tennessee. Um, it was a pretty fairly, fairly decent job, so the company got me a home and a car and and all that kind of stuff, and it was wonderful. And then we were then we, we were expecting our fifth child, and um, I went up to New York and I got Mama and flew her down with me to take care of Bernadette. And the other kids, because Mama loved babies. You know, when you got 16, what are you going to do? You got to love them, right? And, um, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful stay. And one night, I'm sitting in my den, about to do some writing, and Mama comes past in the hall, heading for the dining room, to do some praying. <laughs> and she's got all of her paraphernalia with her. You know, she's got her, <laughs> she's got her prayer I'm not kidding. I'm not, yeah, she's got her prayer cards. She's got her New Testament, her Old Testament, and a set of rosary beads. And she sees me in a den. She stops and she comes in. And she sits down next to me. And she looks at me. And she was kind of nervous, but she she had this strange look on her face. and, And she looked up at me and she says, You know, Bill, all of my life, Mama was then about 74, 75, all of my life, I read about all the miracles that Jesus performed. And all of my life, I read about all the miracles that the saints did. And I used to wonder, would God ever bless me to see a real miracle? Hmm. And then she put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, now I have. It was one of the most incredible things in my life. I had never looked at it that way. I was just struggling to stay sober. And Mama saw it. And that's isn't that what we are? Isn't that what we are? Miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.
1: Well, I didn't know I was supposed to wind this thing up. It was supposed to end at 9.15. I'm really impressed to be here with Bill and Tom. Uh, great story, Tom, that you've told here, considering how we got you on this here. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I'm really impressed to be with this film uh, writer, you know. Uh, I tried to write some films, but they all came back. But I did get something a, few, a couple of years ago. Uh, I was on a thing called History Detectives. Did anybody here ever see that? Uh, I didn't even know there was such a show. It was PBS. And by gosh, they called me up and wanted me to fly down to New York and be interviewed. What had happened, some guy had found a, a letter lit, written to his grandmother. His grandfather had died. And Bill Wilson had written this letter to his grandmother thanking her for the the guy's help and everything else. And she wondered what this guy's relationship was to AA. He he knew that the guy wasn't a member of AA or hadn't been an alcoholic or anything. So they called me up and, and I went down there and I was interviewed in front of the New York waterfront. And then the next day, a couple of ladies picked me up and took me up to Stepping Stone And I see this one woman on PBS all the time on this History Detectives. The thing I remember is I probably saved her life. She had worked half the night, and she was out sleeping in the car with the motor running. And I ran out there every five or ten minutes to make sure she was okay and this sort of thing. But anyway, then I was interviewed in front of 182 Clinton Street. What we finally found out was that the guy had lent Bill some money, uh, a few hundred dollars when he really needed it. And they wove that into the fact that actually the guy had saved AA, really, with my, my lending bill that's $300, whatever it ever was. But uh, they, they questioned me about the Oxford group and wa- wanted me to say some things that I wasn't willing to say and everything. Uh, it's really something to have a couple of these female reporters grabbing you and uh, throwing these questions at you. Uh, but anyway, that was my experience in the film industry. Uh, I, I do tell people, I do tell people once that I made a porno film <laughs> up in Michigan. And the sheriff arrested all of us and charged the other guys with indecent exposure and charged me with inadequate exposure. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Thank <laughs>